Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody welcome back to this is x i'm nico you can find me at nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n on twitter and instagram and i'm arturo that's mr toy box on twitter and instagram hey it's evelyn the comic canary you can find me at comic underscore canary at twitter and instagram and i'm jonah and you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah x-men 14 where we really get the conversation that is clearly set up in stasis like it kind of hurts that stasis and x-men 14 aren't one big book had i not been able to read them so close together had i had to wait a month i would have found myself very frustrated that would not have been a satisfying break point for me as a reader but finally seeing kind of like a best parts fast forward version of the story of arako okara and krakoa i i personally really enjoyed it i don't necessarily think that i needed this sort of clip show kind of sort of you know back in the 80s before things were available on home video or dvd or streaming one of the big things was if you didn't hit syndication which legally required 100 episodes to prove cultural relevance the only way you could ever reshow your best jokes was through clip shows it also allowed for the cast to have a bit of a break when shows used to produce upwards of 28 episodes a year so the art of the clip show actually existed to facilitate creating more art and remind people of the art they might enjoy in an effort to encourage a syndication deal down the line, your Cindy patch. Now, as the number of episodes a year has changed, you know, it used to be closer to 28. So you would hit your Cindy in your fourth year. Well, now it's 22. Now you hit your Cindy in your fifth year. So now it's actually 13. So like you never hit syndication, but they've changed the number. It used to be 65. And now it's, you know, if you can prove cultural relevance. Anyway, I bring all of that up because I don't know that I needed a clip show of stuff I just spent a year reading. I feel in some ways like this was not a $4.99. I'm sorry, a $3.99 purchase. This beautiful art by Mahmoud Asra who is so fucking brilliant it's not even fair to other people to like have to be artists at the same time as this guy right and i love the repeat stuff from lionel francis Yu, but this really didn't feel to me like it was worth 3.99 after stasis okay i completely disagree with you really yes because i i see what you're saying yes this was kind of like a bottle episode but this goes back to what i was saying about the way hickman writes it's sometimes it's musical and here Hickman's not so if if stasis was a lot of world building this to me and anytime that we've gone to this the mutant history of Araco is not just world building it's almost like myth building right so there's 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 a certain magic to repeating you know some of this some of this text some of these images and and it washing over us as readers as not just something that we read several issues ago but something that we're, it's, it's a familiar ground that we're retreading with certain changes, right? So now we're getting we're getting the story as told by Genesis. 
And I didn't, I didn't go back with a fine tooth comb to see what exactly are the differences. Um, I think they're subtle, you know, whereas Summoner said that, uh, that Genesis perished in the battle with Annihilation. Well, yes and no, right? So Summoner definitely had his twist on it and his deceptions within this tale. But there's, I think there's some value to it where, where Hickman is, and we've seen Hickman repeat stuff before, right? In, uh, in House and Powers, um, the Moira, you know, issue. How many times did we see that scene of Moira and Charles in the park? Um, you know, that wasn't that didn't just happen once. It happened a couple of times. And I think there's some value to that because it it's kind of like the like the refrain of a song, you know? It's it's laying it down further, just kind of embeds it into our heads. And I don't know, I think it's a neat trick. I think what you just said was really beautiful and really did get me to think about it a different way. I'm going to adjust my opinion and I'm gonna say I would have rather paid six ninety nine for Stasis and X-Men 14 as one big I don't think X-Men 14 had no purpose but I think this issue was literally predominantly reused art that had been reused multiple times I just don't think it is an entry unto itself that if somebody has never read before and they pick this up that this is going to be fulfilling for them in any way listen I would pay $3.99 just to see uh Sunny Go's colors <laughs> in this just absolutely breathtaking I mean you're talking about Mahmoud Asar's art and it is it is truly incredible but the way Sunny Goes Colors brought it to life, that whole, you know, twilight in the garden of the Starlight Citadel between uh, Genesis and Apocalypse was just so, so beautiful and so moody. I don't know. I, I, oh, I the really purples in it are breathtaking. The, the purples and the reds. And then, yeah, it's just incredible. It, it is an encapsulation of sunset at autumn. And I can't disagree with you. The entire art team deserves a trillion percent credit. And, you know, to Sunny Go's credit, Sunny Go is also responsible for that ecto cooler green in all of the battle sequences and the harrowing of Iska's red, the blinding sun of the gold mm-hmm. on uh, the battle pages, including on Annihilation. But you know what? I actually realized that I jumped ahead of something that I meant to point out. I don't know how many people caught it, but on the penultimate page of Stasis, something happens that really I'm confused by. Genesis mm-hmm. drops the Annihilation mask. We actually see the hitting the ground impact color. It literally is dropped to the ground and just hits on the ground. That is a really interesting act of what I can only refer to as disrespect of an elder god that controls your body. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying it is truly a testament to how much this art is telling how much of this story that even a subtlety like a mask hitting the ground speaks volumes about the book. Yeah, I caught that too. That was a very interesting choice. And it and I agree with you. It smacks of defiance and and in just that little panel it speaks to the constant struggle for for control and dominance that she must be going through with that mask now evelyn this is a really dumb weird question and you can forgive me if this is something where you're just like no one thinks about that but when i look at page 17 of the digital edition and we see that moment of iska and genesis face to face and it's where iska and genesis are pleading with one another it sounds so dumb but i see genesis as very put upon she feels very much like she carries the weight of the world on her shoulders and i seriously think it because she has her hair up so it's out of her way whereas iska just is she is one big 
color tone. She is one statement and her hair's just down because that's how it goes. And like, I don't know if I am projecting that even their hairstyles indicate a certain sense of attitude, but is that a thing? Am I crazy? And as a woman, when you do your martial arts, do you use specific hairstyles to better facilitate movement? Because I mean, you're a, you're a woman warrior too. So I don't know if the artist intentionally did it. I know that for martial arts, um, just... For martial arts, kickboxing, women, I mean, I definitely do the boxer braids to get the hair out of my face, so I'm just ready to go. One of my pet peeves in movies and comics is women with their hair down fighting. So part of me is like, it's probably just artists just having a style for their character. But if you do want to look into it, Iska is unbeatable. So she doesn't have to worry about hair in her face versus Genesis with her hair up. It's, it's definitely like a high pony tale definitely reads to women's like ready to go ready to work like that's something that it's like me and my friends say when we're like ready to like clean the house or like do some like really like annoying chores we're just like all right hair up let's go so there is a possibility of reading into it if it was intentional or not i'm not sure but there definitely can be something to it wow i really really and you know for the record uh friend of the pod demanda martini phenomenal cosplaying drag queen you really should check out demanda martini if you get a chance Amanda and I have long talked about Madonna's high pony at the peak of blonde ambition is the statement of a woman with power. So I, oh, absolutely. I just, I can't absolutely. see it any other way. <laughs> like there's some, like if you have long, like this is just for anyone with long hair. There's something about putting your hair up in a ponytail or a high bun where it literally like it's tight and it like kind of like pulls your head back a little bit. Like the physical feeling of that. It's like, I just associate it with, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get to work so for your money you see iska really does have kind of like a a, like a relaxed attitude to her from her hair and like it actually goes much deeper than i'd I'd read into it you know just i'm i'm not just a man who wouldn't understand the pressures and the societal constructs placed on women's aesthetics but i'm bald as fuck so i especially don't know so that is really such an important distinction for me as a listener right now that does bring me though to another pretty significant question. I don't know how many people have ever really paid attention to X-Men color theory, but X-Men use color in pretty significant ways to indicate pretty specific things. Now, I mean, a lot of it just goes to the heart of of color psychology, right? So I don't know if you guys are aware, but for years, the NFL used to paint their locker rooms different colors. A red locker room would usually be for the home team and a blue or pink locker room for the uh, visiting team. And this actually, the locker rooms that did this, it resulted in a higher number of wins for the home team because blue is actually a cooling color and pink is a softening color and they psychologically underprepare your body for combat but red is an antagonistic color and it psychologically increases your chemical component in your blood so it actually makes you more ready for combat and they actually realized that this is scientifically true and they had to paint all of the NFL locker rooms to be the same colors because it was actually creating an unfair advantage so color theory actually goes a really long way especially as it relates to the psychology and the interaction of battle. For that reason, Apocalypse being the blue that he is, very a beast blue, has always meant to me something very, he's so cool about it, he doesn't care. Like, you know, one of the first things Jonah ever said to me that became like, you know, an in-brain, in-brain meme to me was, cool guys don't look back at explosions. And Apocalypse is so blue because he doesn't have to look back at that explosion. And I can't help but see how much magic is this putrid green. And those who practice mystic art 
cards in this particular situation are white. The white sword can, um, the white blade can resurrect people. The summoner can summon demons. Saturnine is a sorceress. We're seeing white come to mean magic in this situation. We're also starting to see this idea of color opposites. We see Xavier in black, a color that Xavier has never really been known for. And we see Magneto in white. And then on the other side of things, we see the white blade, this representation of another big, large, looming figure like Apocalypse as white versus blue. And I can't help but start to think how much these colors are beginning to dictate a lot of the story, especially in relation to what you said, Arturo, the beautiful dimensions of the autumnal bookends by Azrar. I see how much every color exists here. It literally is where the color story is coming together in a single place. And not to put too much into it that I'm sure it doesn't matter, but the person who led Genesis to her defeat was Iska, who we say is completely red. When we look at the last page of X-Men 14, which is page 24 of the digital edition, Genesis says, but I will soon see what Krakoa has to offer and what you, my love, have to offer as well. And I can't help but notice the color tone on Apocalypse there remind me a lot of the color tones on Iska. Well, I want to say one thing about the about the color. Um, Go for it. Just kind of what building off of what you were talking about. This book uh, is a perfect example of why I still enjoy physical copies because when it comes to the color, I mean, you can just flip from page to page and the way the color washes over a whole scene and, and it's not just per panel is really, it's powerful. You know, you you're without even and reading any of the of the text you feel different emotions as you just flip through this i mean the, yeah I, I just can't speak highly enough about uh, the color in this and the and the way it, it evokes different emotions and creates different um entirely different vibes and i think it's that dexterity of vibe where they're able to tell the past the present the future because in a lot of ways, we have seen the future. We've seen powers of 10, and we've seen what it means if the mutants fail here. So there really is so, so much at stake, and even the colors are making it clear. I also can't help but notice that Genesis, on that page where I'm specifically citing that Apocalypse is bathed in red, Genesis is bathed in shadow, if anything. And I wonder what else is going on there as well. You know what I mean? Like, how far into this rabbit hole does she go. So just kind of piggybacking off of something you said earlier about how the last page has Apocalypse kind of dropped in red. He Something that I noticed um, is that in the beginning, he's also slowly starting to be dripped in red, like in like the first like proper art page um, where he's under the tree. He's still trying to decide if he even wants to talk to Genesis. He's still processing what's going on and he's got a little tint of red like there. And and after you like mentions like at the end too, uh, where he's just covered in red even more so, I wonder if that is a a reflection of what is to come with red, either meaning power and anger and passion, or if it's a more literal blood starting to seep on him. You know, that made me jump back into stasis on page 38 of the digital edition, the moment at which Apocalypse sees that Annihilation is actually Genesis. Genesis, he's shown an entirely red. It's just his that giant face red crack. face. The yeah. look on his face is just, yeah, that, that was, yeah. Again, this is... 
these are sides of apocalypse that you've never really seen. No, <laughs> you know, and I that, think, that level of shock. And it's a level of honesty. Like, you know, characters like Saturnine, part of why nobody can trust Saturnine is because Saturnine never lets the cracks show. Saturnine just had her ass handed to her, but wow, full circle. Saturnine just had her ass handed to her by like the incest siblings. And she's just acting like no big deal. Welcome to my party. And that's kind of just how she is because she never lets the cracks show. She never seems real. And Apocalypse, in so many ways, never seemed real. He was the god of death, not a person. And now we're seeing the person. We've known Apocalypse to have two wives, Genesis and Moira. How much does Moira know about Genesis? How much of this big plan is Moira in on? I'm suddenly more aware of Apocalypse's humanities and the way in which that might just be his folly than I feel like I was at the beginning of this conversation. I definitely don't want to see this Apocalypse die. If he reverts back to big bad Apocalypse that just kind of sucks, well, then he can die. But if he stays this nuanced, complex character, I'm pretty much in it for the long haul. I'm definitely liking this new, more complex character. That's something I've always just loved about both heroes and villains. I love seeing their flaws. I love seeing their humanity. I love being able to relate to them. That's why I hate to say it, but like I've never been a big Superman fan <laughs> because he's just this like perfect guy just going wherever. I mean, he always has a solution for everything. So that's what's always drawn me to the X-Men is they have flaws, they have faults, they struggle. And I like seeing the struggle. And of course, being able, being able to overcome the struggle is kind of what I really relate to and really appreciate about X-Men. X-Men titles in general and what I'm hoping to see with this but on the same time kind of like seeing some people die I think it really like humanizes them I don't want to see all this immortal stuff I think the stakes need to actually be high so I I'm kind of looking forward to that too <laughs> I just, I just love that when we first convened the Quiet Council, right? It seemed like, yes, there's these different, you know, these different seats on the council, but it felt like Xavier, Magneto, and Apocalypse were kind of a little bit elevated, right? A little bit like first among equals, if you will. And whereas I think Xavier and Magneto have kind of taken, uh, taken like a back backstage role in the Dawn of X, we've really kind of been with Apocalypse and and he's been he's been doing a lot you know apocalypse has been has been busy as all hell like we haven't had that kind of that level of of insight into what exactly xavier's doing or what exactly magneto's been doing with with apocalypse we've we've kind of been with him and i don't know you he's just he's like one of the pillars of krakoa in such a such a real way that i, I and in just a way that really shocks me yeah i can't it's just it, i never saw this future for him i never saw him because you know what in so many ways he's become kind of subservient like not in an offensive way but the apocalypse of even two years ago would never agree to be on someone's council that wouldn't be what he did it wouldn't be about oh let me be on your team it would be you're on my team now boy you know what i mean so or however robert baratheon might say it <laughs>
in a in a very Groundhog Day esque sense, we're covering Chapter Twelve of Ten of Swords, X Men Number Fourteen, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Mahmoud Asrar and Lionel Francis Yu, color art by Sunny Go, letters by VCs Clayton Cowell, and designed by Tom Muller. And uh, it was it uh, was yeah. the same. It was it was the same. It was beat for beat the same uh, story and art. Uh, change so, change like, my mind. <laughs> This song reminded me of, I mean, this, I'm sorry, this issue reminded me of, like, you know when a song's a hit song, right? And, like, five or six different remixes come out. And, you know, maybe the, the newest one might be the best, better version of it, but you're just so tired of hearing the song by then, you're like, really? <laughs> uh, somebody that I used to know by Gautier is what this is starting yeah. to feel like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is, and, and again, you have... You have 22 chapters across something like seven books to make this happen. There is almost no excuse for regurgitating the same art and the same story. Granted, I, I understand that the text was different. Like, I, I, I don't want to be called out for someone being like, you didn't actually read the text. No, I know the text was different. <laughs> yeah, you fucking jag off. <laughs> but, but it was it was beat for beat, the art from creation and the story from X-Men 12. Yep, it's it's just told from the Iraqi side instead of the Krakoan side, which is so... which is all fine and well, but I I don't think that we have come to know any of these characters well enough at all. Yeah, even even yeah. with how much of Solemn that we've seen, Solemn is in no way affecting the history of the Amenthi or the Iraqi history. So for my money, I to be honest, if if I were if I had gone out and purchased this issue on a Wednesday, I would been very disappointed that does explain that 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 helps to <laughs> explain the feelings that i couldn't quite uh put words to um yeah this this i was like is that all this, this i i i get that getting this side of the story was helpful but it could have all been combined into a single book it didn't have to be yeah. split. I'll be honest with you. I want I want all three retellings of this same story with all of the text overlaid on the same page. I don't even care to see the art. I remember the art at this point. The art is burned into the back of my head at this point. Just give me all of the text in a single panel, like color coded to which issue they came out in. Just give me mm -hmm. give me the ability to read it all one time. Mm -hmm. You know. Oh my god! If I I swear to God, if I see that damn Twilight Sword two being raised one more time with the same art and this yeah. same, like the twilight sword of the enemy tore the world asunder and what was one became two i swear to god how many issues is that <laughs> yep it's i uh husband from wife parent from child Araco from krakoa like i i honestly feel like i'm having nasty deja vu like deja vu of a In moment terms. that you did never want to experience like that's that's the level of disdain that i'm starting to get here I really need to see this contest start moving and maybe it's my ADHD and maybe it is my need for instant gratification or maybe it's not wanting to pay $15 for the same seven pages of art. <laughs> That's rude. <sighs> yeah. But you know what? It's, you know, and I, I think about how this is going to be collected. I think about the way that the Dawn of X is being collected at current and I think about the way that this is going to be collected. And correct me if I'm wrong, there will probably be a trade of this. Ten of, oh, ten yeah. of swords will stand on its own. Yeah. How is that going to feel 
like reading the same passage, seeing the same art for one eighth of the book. One, one, yeah, yeah, I'll say one eighth of the book. I wonder if it might be different because, I mean, for us, we have to like, you know, wait week by week. So, um, I, you know, I do understand that we're getting a little impatient for them to start fighting, but I do wonder if maybe reading it one go, it'll probably be different because then, you know, later on that day or that weekend, you'll get to the end maybe. Yeah. Like, yeah. It would just, Ooh. oh, and I imagine it'll feel different. We did learn that um, whoever defeats the the golden helm pretty much gets cursed to have to yeah. to wear the helm, and the helm is the only thing that holds back the Amenthi forces. I I, I went back and reread X Men Twelve <laughs> along with this, so I was reading the same pages for like <laughs> forever. <laughs> oh my god! And I was like, how many times do I to? Um, there, you could see a lot of the summoner story when he told it. Actually, maybe wasn't as much of a fabrication. It was just the point of view from them. Like even when they say, you know, like in X Men Twelve, they're like Genesis died. Well, she did basically die because she had to become Annihilation. So mm. I like that she held off for a hundred years, and that's what caused the demons to attack Arako from a myth. So and and destroy all the the protective towers that they had built. <sighs> Yeah. So I'm I'm still kind of wondering Summoner's his motivation behind this because that I thought was a fairly recent event and Genesis hadn't donned the the helm at that point so he obviously wasn't doing it uh opening the portal at her behest. I'm wondering what his his true motivation is. Oh, I'm sure they'll tell us in the same yeah, pages of art again. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we'll get a retelling of it I, with his words. <laughs> with his I, real story. God, I, I, I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait to come out of this event and then just to have Charles recap it for some reason. Like, I just, I just want to see this. Now, now it's kind of a joke. Now, I now it's a joke. That. Now it's, now it's like the only, the only thing that's going to keep me from driving off the cliff, right? It's just to yeah. keep replaying this every two weeks. <laughs> uh, every, every all right, guys, that, that, that was X-Men number 14. <laughs> that really was X-Men number 14, unfortunately. Though we did get another prophecy from Idol. Oh yeah, the data page idol son of idol seer of this generation um gave one last prophecy before she was silenced by a vile engineer only under the black moon will two become one a white light will judge them a red land will see them split forever Ooh, i wonder Ooh, the white light the judging them it has to be saturnine in the starlight citadel i'm yeah. Oh, I, I could see that. I didn't even think of that, but that really does make a lot of sense. In a red land. Mars. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do love, I know we've seen them before, but I do love the how almost completely opposite the like three sacred tenets of Arako are from Krakoa. I mean, obviously they have the first one, Make More Mutants is the same. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, destroy our enemies and defend this broken land. It's It's just really speaks to the whole mentality of the Arakans. Right, where their mentality was really only the fit survive. And oh, gotcha. whereas yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a very brutal uh mentality. 
Um, the few new pages we saw, I did see some cool hope, you know, and maybe Apocalypse thinks he can free Genesis from Annihilation because he's like, you're the strongest person I know. So maybe he thinks he can. I'm I'm honestly concerned because if if he has to fight Annihilation and he wins, then he becomes Annihilation. Ooh. Oh my but, god, I did not think oh my god. <laughs> and at the same time, if if either of them dies in other other worlds and they get resurrected, they won't come back the same. Holy jeez, I didn't even really I didn't even realize the annihilation piece. Yeah, if he wins, wow. Yeah, that could that could be a that could be bad. That's so sad. Because, <laughs> yeah. Because it's it's not even like he has control over the actions of Annihilation. Whatever Annihilation wants, Annihilation gets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she basically says that she's like, uh, Annihilation wants everything, so I want everything. And now I want Krakoa. <laughs> so does Mwah. anybody have anything? <laughs> 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 Now, before Raven and I were having a conversation earlier in the green room about um, Saturnine, because we have Saturnine here. She's clearly playing a role as she introduces herself and is kind of bringing them in. Um, Raven, you had said something to me interesting about Saturnine's motivations, because we were talking about like compared to Annihilation or Apocalypse, like Saturnine's so powerful. What could she possibly want or need for, as an outcome of this battle? So... Uh... I was I was kind of looking through and and trying to figure out like yeah what is everybody's motivation? Uh, Apocalypse wants to save all of mutant kind, especially that here in our reality on Earth. Um, Annihilation literally just wants to annihilate everything. That is their driving force. They want everything. So with Saturnine, I mean she's already the the magistrate magistratrix. I'll be able to pronounce that one day, I swear. Um, she's basically the, she's the magister, but she is in one realm. She still has to ask permission to go to certain lands. She, you know, she's basically the, the curator of all the gates. Um, but as we've seen in the last several issues, the way you create a gate from one point to another has always involved sacrifice of usually mutants and, um, you know, to design the gate, to get it up and running and to get it from point A to point B. Well, now she has basically, what, 20 mutants or 20 uh, participants yeah. who could possibly be used as fodder or as power for, an, uh, I was thinking, an omnidimensional gate that she could have sole control over, which would now, make her... Now, when told that to me... Yeah. I almost fell out of my chair because Raven has not read the previous Hickman runs in Marvel. But for mm -mm. those who are not aware, pretty much the entirety of Jonathan Hickman's pre-House of X Marvel stories revolved around the creation of that very specific device Raven just mentioned called the bridge made by Reed Richards that allows you to walk through any dimension, any world at any time. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. the yeah. crux, it was the catalyst and the crux of his entire Fantastic Four realm. 
and one of the first things brought up and brought into and played an essential part of his Secret Wars run, of his yeah. Avengers run leading up to Secret Wars. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and Hickman said this is his last project ever with Marvel. So I think it's gonna he's gonna bring all of his little toys together and be like, Hey, I did it. I created this and I had it all going along this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us were expecting heading into House of X and Powers of Ten that we were going to see previous things, that we were gonna see more Doom, that we were gonna see more of the maker, the ultimate universe's Reed Richards who became a, a powerful cross-universe villain, that we were mm-hmm. going to see things like the bridge, the machine to teleport. Now, we haven't needed the bridge because we've gotten these Krakoan gates, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've gotten all of these gateways lately. The design of Dawn of X Magneto and Professor X very clearly mimicked what we saw of Doom and the Maker in the Secret Wars run, but mm-hmm. has not been. Like, we have gotten nothing of them. And I think We've kind of gotten away from that. Like, this has become its own big, great story that it hasn't felt like it needed Fantastic Four Avengers Infusion, because it doesn't. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean we're not going to get it. That doesn't mean that they're not going to have to go get a device from Reed Richards or go bring Doom in or or anything else along the way. He is still Jonathan Hickman. True, true. And I think that I think this page with Saturnine um, brings brings your points to fruition because, like she said in this, she could snap her fingers and Wolverine would be no more ever. Mm-hmm. You know, so why is she even working with these mutants? Why is she even making this competition? Because she's using them for a ritual. Mm-hmm. And you need as many people alive as you have dead to create gates. So when they created um, uh, the Krakoan gate. It took four dead ancient mutants, more or less, to do that. And they had an equal number of people who were helping to power it all up. So 10 v 10 or, you know, 10 v 9, technically. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's a there's a pretty big setup right there to create a, an Omni gate, basically, that she would control. Oh, God. And then she has that thing for Brian Braddock that, hmm. Oh, oh mm. sorry, my brain, my brain, my brain just That's went on its own tangent. The thing that I, I have like, to keep coming back huh. to when when we're talking about Saturnine's intention for motivations, I I I keep wondering. Okay, why did she send Cable to uh, start up Sword, the Sword Station? And that mm-hmm. has to play into uh, exactly what you're talking about, like um, manipulating the situation so that she has more access or create creating gates. I mean, there there has to be a greater purpose because we haven't touched on it in a while, but she, you know, she definitely set that in motion. Yeah, she wanted that, that sword base up for some reason. You're right. Well, don't most gate creations also take a massive amount of power, mm-hmm. like just raw energy to, to, to move it forward. If she's not an energy It reminds me more, in Fantastic Four and in Secret Wars, there were these incredibly powerful devices, but they required alignment. Um, Mm. they required alignment and usually one of them required some sort of satellite or moon base. Like they required a certain type of energy alignment, like on and off planet in order to, uh, power them up. Mm -hmm. And And so in in kind of Hickman schematic mode, I could see the sword base as being part of that alignment from like, I think they had the, the hammer and the anvil were two of the big weapons that they used that required that. In the Fantastic Four run, they had to like align it through. I think it was like Atlantis, Wakanda, the blue area of the moon. And Now, does Saturnine know where the sword base is located? She sent Cable there. 
Yeah, she sent Cable. Well, but... she told him where to go. She yeah. didn't give him exact coordinates, but Scott and Jean knew where to find it. It's one of the few places that does not have oh, a gate to it. That is true. That is true. Maybe she's oh. like planning for them to get a Krakoan gate there, and maybe that's why mm-hmm. how she can figure out where it is. Because mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, because that is an insanely powerful place. So you know, you you need a you need a Death Star. That's where you go. <laughs> and I mean, this kind of brings up to the point where you know, in every life that Mora has had, um, the mutants have basically died because of technology, in a mm-hmm. sense. So maybe this time, the undoing of mutants will be magic. Hmm. Could be. I mean, X Men Twelve Summoner gave us you know his half truth story of uh, the history of Araco. And now we're seeing those exact same panels told from Genesis's point of view. Um, it reminds me very much of an issue of Wicked and the Divine that uh, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey did, where Kieran Gillen, who really liked experimenting with parallels between comics and music, wanted to make a remix and did a very similar thing, using all panels from previous art, telling it from a different narrator's version. Um, and, and that's what this is. We're not going anywhere into new story territory. We are just fleshing out and clarifying some previous misconceptions, previous information, and character motivations. One of the things that I've really appreciated, um, and I know that people, uh, you know, I've heard people say, like, where is the character Tarot? Um, I love that we get the data page with Tarot's perspective, where she's drawing somebody's Tarot prediction and not knowing who it belongs to and giving us her own insight. And I think, for, again, as a, as a person who is unfamiliar with Tarot, I love having that. I love having somebody's perspective on what we're seeing with all these different characters that we know. And really, it's been really insightful to kind of see i know teeny is is really big on on tarot and th- th- this is probably a lot of her influence seeing what what she's bringing in her perspective tarot through these different lenses and how it's actually progressing the story in a lot of ways i think saturnine we know she's manipulating everything right she she is deciding potentially who is getting what card knowing how that might influence their reaction and what they're going to do with that card so for, for some characters, Absolutely. it's almost like a slap in the face, right? I'm thinking Wolverine, I'm thinking Cable, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're feeling insulted almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apocalypse maybe in, in a way too. Other characters, it might be bolstering them. You know, and I, and I, mm-hmm. love, I love seeing that level of manipulation coming from her. It, again, it, <laughs> it could go either way, right? Like, that, you know, looking at Storm's reaction to her card. It's like, what is, what is she thinking mm-hmm. and feeling from that? seeing that death art um you know it it just it brings so many different ideas into my head and i'm so excited to see where we go with that but yeah i I love bringing in tarot i I love just from the new mutants era bringing those hellions in and getting some of those characters back um and what a way to end an issue genesis how how are you annihilation survival of the fittest well i mean come on what isn't what is genesis's power Oh, that was redacted. That was redacted. I know. We only know her power to be some kind of, like what we've seen in other pages, is be some kind of magic plant-based, but that might not be the only power that she has, especially with the Annihilation. Is it just general life-based? It might be that as well. She's she, creation. Yeah. She's supposed to be the one of the, she's supposed to be the most powerful one, even more powerful than Apocalypse. 
Yeah, normally you'd see Apocalypse smacking the taste out of somebody's mouth for even like even sort of saying that he might not be the strongest or he might not be the best. And like and like she just flats out says it to his face from like six inches away. And I'm like, he's just taking it. Yeah, he's like, thank shit. you. Give me another. <laughs> right? uh, spit on me more. I'm your horse. It's, it's, I'm like, damn. Oh, it starts. You know, like it's in the opening pages of X-Men 14. She just looks at him with disdain. So you're a man of peace now. Have you fallen so far? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh. Oh, and he doesn't even really try and defend himself. I'm like, damn, dude, she knows your number, and you know that she knows your number. Shit. Yeah. She's like, You have fallen so far. You're so weak. You're not any better. I told you to get better. And now you're mm-hmm. worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. You bring soft mutants from soft soil. It's like right. oh, you bring oh, cocoa oh. with soft hands. I'm like, oh, oh. man. Oh, but, she, she she's saying you got weak hands, man. <laughs> One of the things that I don't know, I don't remember if it's been, if it's been explained or not since we're talking about issue 14 now is mm-hmm. I don't I want to know how the Twilight Sword got made. Like, what's its origin? Like, I want to like because we keep seeing how it like broke up the land and did all this and did all that. Mm-hmm. And now um, Genesis has the Twilight Sword. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. What? How did it get made? What's its origin? If she has the sword that split Araco in two. Yeah, that's a sword. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, how did that, how did that sword become like come to be? I want to know the history of that sword. Yes. Hopefully, we get that soon. Oh my god, yes, please. Like, <laughs> just give me an entire issue on just that sword, and I will be a very happy camper. Right, I'd be fine with that. I mean, we Ooh. we've gotten repeat issues already. Can we get an issue about mm-hmm. just Genesis? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean. Oh, that'd be oh, that'd be awesome. We learned from her here, right? So basically, she ruled Araco for thousands of years. She kept Ament at bay. Then she was brought to Annihilation. Um, mm-hmm. Her sister Parlade brought her there. She fought Annihilation. She beat her and then had to claim the helm. To defeat Annihilation is to become Annihilation. Mm-hmm. And now she's kind of Marvel's evil Dr. Fate something? Like... She's Ooh, got, yeah. there's some Dr. Fate stuff like with the helm and the power and the direction of it along with, you know, like she's a pretty bad bitch before that too. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say like a, well, do- a dark Dr. Fate, a one that doesn't want to bring order, but just wants to bring chaos. Yes. Not, not even chaos. Yeah. She wants to do exactly what her name said. Annihilation. True. Yeah. <laughs> chaos would mean things are still going on. It would be, you know, Jamie Braddock, but universe wide, but no, 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 yeah. she she wants to bring just pure annihilation. That is true. Which is yeah, terrifying. And I mean, she fought the Golden Helm for over a hundred years. She said mm-hmm. she tried not to give in and become annihilation. But when she did that, her people got decimated. You know, her city fell. Yeah, she got she her ass handed to her. Yeah. There was nothing she could do. So, you know, it's a it's a beat him or join him kind of proposition. And it looks like she might have had to to join him and just become Annihilation because that's all she could do. Exactly. Yeah, she had no choice in the matter. I mean, and that's why all this is happening, basically, is because she wants to destroy everything. And her her family is by her side because they're like, well, we have to. We're your family. We have to do what you say or, or you know, we'll be yeah. killed. <laughs> I, I don't even think they're afraid of death. I think they're just going, 
yeah, yeah, we saw all of our our city was was massacred. All of our all of our friends, family, everything else was just murdered, killed, destroyed. It, you know what? Fuck it. You you can't stop this particular wave from moving forward. So I guess we're just going to go with it because that's how we do. Yeah, I mean, you can only go through so much destruction and death before you just become numb to it, and you just gotta go mm-hmm. along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Arakan laws. Make more mutants. Destroy our enemies. Defend this broken land. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting for so many ways. One, that they have exactly three laws, just like Krakoa. Mm-hmm. Two, that the first one is also make more mutants. Because, you know, we thought it was just, you know, Nightcrawler being a little horny on Maine. But <laughs> he was on to something. He was on Honestly, something. that first that first law explains pretty much the entire history. <laughs> Why are they always screwing with every... Oh, got it. Make more mutants. And then the parallels. (laughs) We get these parallels where the second law of Krakoa is kill no humans. Mm -hmm. Whereas the second law of Arako is destroy our enemies. Mm -hmm. The third law of Krakoa is defend this sacred land. Mm -hmm. The third law of Arako is defend this broken land. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely definitely interesting. I feel like if, if more mutants were populating the earth it'd probably be more destroy our enemies and kill no mutants i mean and kill no humans but the humans outnumber obviously the mutants and they're on this like segregated island that they're just trying to you know be comfortable just live so they're like we don't need to draw any more attention to ourselves we just need to not kill any humans and just try to live happy you know just try to live Instead of the other side, they're like, no, we're trying to win this war. We're trying to take over everything because there's a lot of us and we can do it. And we're strong and we can do all this ourselves. We're destroying everything, especially after if they already had that mindset before Genesis got taken over by Annihilation. Then, I mean, then it's even more apparent that they're going to follow her because they're like, well, one of our laws is destroy our enemies. So, sure, we can destroy everything for you. Why not? We already were doing that anyway. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. I mean, yeah, that's that's the whole thing is mutants have found on mutants on Earth have found a peaceful place that they're kind of trying to, like, keep nice and, and kind and peaceful. And they're trying to go that route because they've seen war over the short term and how much damage it does and how little good it does. Whereas, you know, on the Arakan side, war is pretty much the only thing that they have known since the beginning, since their founding. You know, first generation was insanely powerful mutants fighting against an enemy cause and and having to like, you know, their their land gets cleft in two, they're thrown practically to the other side of the universe and they're like yeah this is just how it goes we're just gonna we're gonna be over here you know kicking ass and and keeping uh mutants from being utterly destroyed you know try not to fuck it up over here (laughs) (laughs) now how much of this though is because they look at arako as being the broken land if krakoa is the sacred land the sacred land and arako is the part broken off does would the reunification, the healing of Arako by being rejoined with Krakoa, the reunification of Akara, would that change if they had a sacred land to defend instead of a broken land? Would that change their need to destroy their enemies? I think it would. I feel like like I was um, talking with Raven earlier that 
I think that once they, some of them might survive, you know, this trial, this competition, and if they come to Krakoa, they're going to see, wow, no one is, you know, fighting anyone. They're living peacefully. They're partying. They're relaxing. You know, they're just, they're just reading and living their lives. Orgy houses on the moon. I mean, they're, they're living life other than just fighting and training to fight. So they're like, wow, this is what we can have. This is what, you know, generations of not being, having to fight a war over and over again is what it's like. Like, this is, this is great. Let's do this. Let's defend this land instead of just trying to destroy everything. We see so many different parallels between Krakoa and Arako. And, you know, I I think we probably could do like an entire episode just paralleling everything that we see. But, you know, this line makes me think, like, defend this broken land. We're, we're looking, we're, we're looking at two different groups of mutants who, who view things from different perspectives uh, are you know Krakoan mutants only really know Krakoa Arako Okara that's a whole new concept to them whereas the Arako mutants knew that it used to be a unified land broken so you know, if you go back in the history of you know both sides and start looking at those parallels, you know right from the get go, it's it's a different vision of how things are or how things should be or how things were. And the the trajectory, like there's been there's been so much that's been similar, right? We have a quiet council on both islands, right? We have you know like just looking at X of Swords, we we have like the the participants who kind of parallel each other in different ways, but the reasons for each of the participants also is so vastly different. I would say like a majority of the Krakoan mutants, like they're in it for Krakoa, for the unity. So many of the participants of Arako, like they've got their own agenda. The white sword, he's not fighting for Arako. He's fighting for himself to get something. Oh, 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 oh. What if Arako has a Moira? Oh. Arako could have a Moira, but see, that's my thing. I don't know. Does it, if a... Does Araku have a Moira because they have um, they have future tellers they have prologues prologues mm-hmm. so precogs pro- precogs I can't say words today precogs thank you prologue is um, the chapter that comes at the beginning of a book yeah. right <laughs> that too um, that too um, so they have them like on the on this issue themse- itself they have them say that destruction is coming and all this is happening and they're like well you're just weak we're, I'm just gonna kill you no, we're not gonna be beaten just shut up you mm-hmm. know. And then on Kokoa, there's none allowed. We don't reborn them. We're not trying to see the future. Obviously, we know why they're not doing that. But the Krakoans don't know why, most of them anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a parallel in itself. That's one of the things that Araku does have that Krakoa doesn't. Mm-hmm. One Art more parallel have. before we go into final thoughts. Mm-hmm. In a month, the Court of Annihilation. When Genesis finds out that those mutants who had been killed, mm-hmm. the, the mutants who deserted and who she thought dead, had been breeding and mixed breeding over and over again, making stronger and stronger lines of mutants. Does anyone see the? Did anyone pick up on the parallel there to Sinister and the Chimeras in Earth Nine? Oh yeah, I picked in it up. Nine. Automatically, I thought of that. I was like, oh, this is. This is exactly what Sinister did in one of Moira's futures, and they already did it. Like, they need to, I hope they, I was thinking, I hope they learn from their past. Like, Mm -hmm. think of the, communicate with each other and say, hey, 
this is what has happened in our history. So make sure this doesn't happen on Krakoa on Earth, you know? I might go yeah. a slightly different rec- uh, direction with the parallel um, because the, the the deserting mutants were bred with the demons of Amen, whereas in, we've seen the, the combination of humans with technology. So like the, the idea mm-hmm. that the way mutants lose is some kind of hybrid that they're fighting against. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, okay. Because for all of their evolution, they have not evolved as far as a hybrid has. Yeah. I mean, technology is a very powerful thing. Non-mutants with tech in one world, Mm -hmm. mutants versus non-mutants with magic in another world. Mm -hmm. Mutants are just fighting everything, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) That's why they got to get together. That's why we got Team Mutant now. Right? Exactly. it, it, It shows that hybrids are getting either more information or the best of both worlds on, on, in in many ways. Like just being a quote unquote purebred does not mean that you're the best suited for the world or for the environment or, you know, for the timeline. Being able to diversify, being able to adapt, you know, add more to yourself, whether that be through magic or technology, that's that could very well be a way forward. Exactly. That's that's one of the reasons why I've always wanted mutants to be more involved in magic, because I feel like that could a lot solve and help a lot of their problems. Or embracing technology instead of having to run and hide from it. That as well. Final thoughts on X of Swords, Ten of Swords, Chapter 11, Stasis, Chapter 12, X-Men number 14. Dante. I think ultimately, I hope that we actually see a lot of survivors on both sides because I am so interested in these new characters and the dynamics that they would bring uh, to a, you know, maybe a unified land if that's where we end up with... uh, Perkoa and Arako back together as Apara. But everything, yeah, everything that I'm getting from these books, like, I am still here for. So, Bay is Bay, uh, Isra's got swagger, <laughs> and I'm ready for all of it. Mm-hmm. Rod, final thoughts? My final thoughts are, I am just loving this event. Like, bring back what Dante said about wanting to see more of these characters. That really shows how well this event is being written, that you love basically every character that's being introduced, that you don't want to see them go. Like, we know some of them are going to go away, but the fact that this is so rarely drawn, really written and edited shows that this is one of the probably top events that is going to be in Marvel's history. And I love that. Mm -hmm. The X-Men get a top event. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Raven, final thoughts. Uh, Oh, my God. I am absolutely loving this arc. I, oh, like every new character they introduce, I'm not going, eh, you don't need to be here. I'm just going, oh, God, they've got a new character. Oh, they look really cool. Ooh, they, oh, uh, mm, uh." like it, I am so addicted to this arc now that I just cannot wait to see where it goes because it will change you know comic history in many ways and it'll be amazing to see not only how it happens but what happens after it so I am so all about this well I have to say I think that um I was not super excited going into this I was excited to get a big X crossover. I was, I knew, I felt like I could be pretty confident we were going to get a good story. But I was not excited like, oh my God, this is the story I've been waiting for. And I am so excited in it now. Some of it just because of the the story points, the way 
how well it's crafted and on every level, not just Teeny's attention to detail, but what they're doing with the art and the colors, what the editors are doing. And, you know, as um, Rod said, like the total package, the execution on this has been top notch. It's been so well planned even despite, you know, coronavirus and shipping and production deadlines and, you know, pencils down edicts by Marvel, like they've managed to make something that is so compelling that I I can't wait. Like, I don't know how I'm going to emotionally handle the last three chapters all dropping on the same day. Like that is just wild to me that like they're all predicted to come out in just a couple weeks, 2021, 22 on the same day. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Exes for Podcast. Now, the following material is from an upcoming YouTube video, but we're giving you guys a sample of it here first, sort of a fun-sized cutdown over the next two episodes, detailing what happens when Josh and I take a look at the origins of Apocalypse, most specifically his demise in the pages of Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. It leads to a huge conversation about the future past, the past future, and where we think the X-Men might be going ahead. So check out this new feature. And we'll see you on the other side of the gateway. Basically, I'm looking at this from a point of view of, man, Gene Ha put a lot of muscles everywhere. So many extra, like, if we're talking, like, anatomy and physiology, like, there are so many extra bones and muscles on uh, this character here that most humans have. Oh, I completely agree. I think one of my favorite things about the extra muscles that Jean has is that I kind of can't tell which are her and which are Scott's leg. Well, that's for the best, because if you were to remove her from this and just imagine what the mass muscle mutant hawks fucking mutation body is behind her, it would be horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm I'm trying to figure out where his pec ends, that where his area begins is connected so closely. This is this is scary. No wonder the future is so much body horror. So I'm looking at this as this is the end of Apocalypse's timeline that tells us the most yeah. about his past mm-hmm. up through now. And it actually turns mm-hmm. out this was reprinted with uh, it's Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix 1 through 4, Ascani Sun 1 through 4, and X-Men Phoenix 1 through 3, and then a little bit of the Marvel Valentine's Day special in 2014. This got a deluxe trade repressing with Ooh. a number of the bonus features. I love the trade repressings because I feel like they don't get enough credit when they go back and they realize stuff was missing. Right? That's the one thing I wish they would do better with the omnibus editions. They don't because they only make like a fucking thousand of them and make them available for like three months. And then 10 years later, they're like, refuse to fucking print anymore because they're like, didn't we just do that? Forgetting that it's impossible to fucking find. I never, ever miss out on them. I am such a hardcore dick about making sure I never miss them. Yeah, because the you I- miss it the first time, you're fucked. Yeah, Wolverine and the X-Men, Omnibus, for the rest of my life, for the rest of my life, for the rest of my fucking life. I'm just really grateful I have the Captain Britain by Alan Moore and Alan Davis because I would not be willing to spend the money on that right now. People are a little too hardcore about that guy. We're taking a look at uh, Scott Lobdell and Gene Ha's Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which rode on the heels of Gene and Scott's marriage. And, you know, they even tried to tie in Rachel getting lost in the time stream, which, you know, when I go back and read Excalibur 75 and 76, what they tell me happened in 76 did not happen in 75. (laughs) All of the Rachel just swapped places with Captain Britain. And now Amanda Sefton is responsible for all of this. Yay. Kind of. No, that's not what happened. I'm fine with it, but it's not what happened. And they sort of reference it here. 
And, you know, when I think about what this represented, like I was a little kid when this came out. So when this came out, it came out in that like uh, super collector edition, those like little cardboard boxes with the flip top where you could see the front issue on display Mm -hmm. and it had a couple of books in it. I got this that way. So I read this all at once in like 1996. Because your digital edition doesn't have this, but um, 90s card stock cover. Beautiful. And it made it seem realer. I love the fact that we even have to comment on the sound it makes because that is my favorite thing to try and not edit out of episodes when I can hear people rustling the pages of the book in the background. I'm like, I'm going to keep that. And, you know, when I think about this book, I think about how confused I was as a kid because I wasn't really reading yet. Were you reading when this came out or no? Okay, I was reading when this came out. This came out right after, as you said, Scalibur 75 and X-Men 30. So we're talking the year in between Fatal Attractions and Age of Apocalypse. I was reading, but not at an LCS. So I was getting all of my X-Men stuff from the local supermarket. I told on my website the story a number of times of uh, getting my first X-Men issue 301, which is a horrible first X-Men issue for anyone because you have no idea who any of the characters are or what the fuck is going on at all. But I loved it and read it over and over again anyway. And then every week when I would go to the supermarket with my mother, she was happy to let me just spend the entire time she shopped sitting in the magazine aisle, uh, looking through the comics. And once every four trips, there would be a new X-Men book and she would get it for me. And I have, I still have an old suitcase of banged the fuck up copies of basically every issue of Uncanny X-Men 301 to um, 316 with like Fallon's Covenant starts. So I was reading it that way. And when this came out, I saw it, but little kid me was so turned off by the art that I couldn't. I couldn't get into it or try. That was my situation. And I looked at it and it was just too weird and off for me. I felt that way about uh, Bill Sienkiewicz as a kid before, like, that was my jam. And now, like, that's my favorite era of X-Men and my favorite style for a book to be in. You can see the Bill Sienkiewicz, Chris Claremont artist edition in the background. You know, when I look at this, I see how much this really is grotesque. You know, the page we have up, the spread we have open is so hard to even parse what we're looking at at times. And I'm so glad you mentioned Phalanx Covenant and sort of that 301 to 316 era, because this really was sort of the full come due of what started with New Mutants with Bill Sienkiewicz and Warlock and what grew into New Mutants under Rob Liefeld with Cable and the Metal Arm, you know, body horror this sort of grotesquery, yeah. this sort of physical transformation. You know, the 90s was so confrontational and hideous at times, like on purpose. It was like purposefully ugly that when you have something like this, the ugliness so this is, is hard this. This is 90s, but not sexy. Well, speaking of butts and sexy, if you take a look at the page we have open, that that ass is everything to me right there. That is like so much ass. That is ass for days. And it's meant to be sexy. Really? I think. that's Otherwise, that's a real clenched butt. That's a real um, clenched butt not to be sexy. So I think for younger readers as well, um, one of the harder things to kind of overcome in this was the stylistic choice Gene Ha did with how he was going to depict them because he had a very fine line to walk here. They are not transported into the future. They're body swapped. And so you're selling a book about Cyclops and Phoenix and you want them to be somewhat recognizable about Cyclops and Phoenix, but they also have to clearly not be the bodies of Cyclops and Phoenix. So they have to be Scott and Jean, but not. And I think 
from I know for me as a younger reader, and I would think for most younger readers, it just seemed too off or wrong to be like, but that's not like, like that's a weird version of Cyclops. or that's a weird version of Jean Grey. You know, for kids or younger readers reading the X-Men, of which there were a fuck ton in the early to mid 90s, you really wanted your characters to look like they did on the animated series. And, you know, it's that same idea that makes it so fucking fascinating that even the ones that are vaguely not recognizable, like nobody really knows who Rachel Gray is off the top of their head unless they're a fan of the comics, to see Rachel as sort of this grotesque old lady in a really big robe, like, I mean, like it's so But she hard. still has the hound scars and the Excalibur mullet, which is which, like an awesome design. It's such an amazing little touch to what, you know, is going yes. on in the books. And I find myself like, I don't know, there's so much about this book that before we even get into the apocalypse or the cable of it all, the Gene Scott setup kind of drives me nuts. It was such a 90s thing to be like, oh, they're without their powers for three pages. How did they not drown? Like, like they could have taken them anywhere. Like, we're going to flash them forward from their honeymoon. This is right after X-Men 30. They're on their honeymoon. They're at a beach. Okay, so we could have them be in bed. We could have them be in their bungalow, in their apartment. We, no, we can have them in the ocean so they fall into the fucking water while their souls are displaced through time. <laughs> it's a time title. What a choice. Why? Um, I think because everything about this book was just meant to be so hardcore. Like, we spent so many pages just being angry face. Like, I don't know who any of these people are. The whole first issue is angry face setup. That's all it is for, like, a bunch of pages. But I also love how hardcore they try to remind us that this still is the X-Men, where they're like, Danger Room 101, make do with what you have, for example. The remains of a dog soldier's weapon. Uh, hold on. Okay. Yes. Um, so Scott Lobdell doing that here, I love so much. <laughs> the flip side reverse of it makes me crazy, 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 which is to say that because Scott Lobdell was writing Uncanny at the time, and he wrote this, that when in this, he referenced back to like, but we're really just from, or here's how we did things in the 90s. Great. Whenever he would occasionally reference like, hey, we just spent 16 years in the future in these other bodies and now we're back. Makes me like, how smooth and not like, like that that was not like, they should be forgetting where shit is in the mansion. Like they should be forgetting who people are. And like the, the, it's so poorly done. It's so poorly done on the other end in the uncanny books when he tried sewing it back in on that end. Well, and I think it's, it's got to be a little bit like this big game they're playing, right? Like it says right at the end of this that there's going to be a follow-up in Ascani Sun 1 through 4. And I laugh hysterically because I forget which issue it is, but it's like issue 2 or 3 where they're like in the now legendary Uncanny 25 or now legendary X-Men 25. And I'm like, this was printed before that was released. So how legendary is it? I'm just checking for a friend. Scott Lobdell definitely had some ideas on himself. Um, he was feeling himself back then. Don't forget, like, he went from intern to essentially leader of the biggest line in comics. Yeah. Because X-Men was the biggest line in comics. Fucking was. He, he went from intern to leader of the biggest line in comics within 18 months, all from a 
slight combination of being in the right place at the right, right, place, time, right time, being loved by the editor, and yeah, and then like being in the right place at the right time again, in terms of like Peter David storming off, Bob Harris loving him more than he loved his own children, and then Jim Lee taking like making it the biggest thing in comics and then leaving to do Wildstorm. Um, and Scott Lobdell went literally from intern to biggest running the biggest property in town within an 18 month span he was feeling the fuck out of himself right about now and i think it also has to do with the fact that he seemed okay you and i would have been too let's be honest oh yeah no i would never fucking be like no way i would be like what do you need what do you need mr harris you're a genius so like i i feel like he towed the company line really well though something we've talked a lot a little bit on x's for podcast is that Apocalypse was a shadow created by Bob Layton that Wheezy projected something into, and it became this amazing idea of this character that represented this sort of like, you know, if Magneto is the balance of Xavier's dream, then Apocalypse is like the dark god that rules over all of them in this scary, scary way. So it kind of feels like in a lot of ways, Lobdell came in and was like, well, what do we need done? Well... I'm here. Now, hold on. Let's, you left something out. Let's let's jump back a minute because okay, Wheezy created Apocalypse as the Dark God. Wheezy gave Apocalypse his background and and set the trajectory on what he was. Labdell came in and solidified. But in between, there are AC, four AC. crucial crucial issues by Claremont in X Factor, oh, right. in yeah. Endgame that uh, make Apocalypse from being this being from the past into something that extends deep into the future into inexplicably tying him into the summer's line and cable because he was not he was more connected to warren before endgame yeah absolutely now he is inexplicably tied to this he is forever tied to the summers forever tied to the character that would become cable makes me so mad like we get all of this from Endgame, um, sixty-five through X Factor, sixty-five through sixty-eight by Claremont. Yeah. So Claremont does a big. If we're looking at the Summers Line story, the Cyclops and his family, the Apocalypse stories, the Cable stories, all of those have a huge defining moment in Endgame, and then probably your next big sweep. Because I'm gonna. Executioner's song attempted to be a big part of it, but I don't think really long-term, long-term effects from that, I don't think really too much. This, okay. This is your next big, like, we big can tell jump. the story of these characters with while leaving out Executioner's song. We can't tell the story of these characters with leaving out Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And I feel like part of it is, you know, we're talking about the the changeover from Marvel of writers to the Marvel of artists. And Will Spartaccio yeah. did half of the story on Endgame. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was also the guy who was working closely with Jim Lee, the guy who yeah. took over Uncanny. The guy. So it was really like Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, Nisieza, Lobdell, Will Sportaccio. They all sort of like incestuously worked on everything together. Then Claremont quits. Then Jim Lee leaves. Will Sportaccio leaves. And it. by the way, Will Sportaccio, who lost the ability to use his dominant hand and then learned how to draw with his other hand. He I, is so fucking... Um, like, it's just like, if you bring up that man, you have to bring up how brilliant that is, that he was able to And learn. he gets so undercredited and deserved. Like, I found him at Megacon one year here in Orlando, 
and I had no idea he was there. And it was because he had his own table and artist alley he had to purchase among people like, and I was like, he should be in the create, like he should be in the big creators area. Why is he in like row purple table eight? Like, you know, it's, and I know you'll appreciate this. It's, you know, everybody's like, oh, it was Nirvana versus Pearl Jam. And I'm like, uh, but there was also Soundgarden. Okay. And there was also Alice in Chains. Like, People recontextualize the past based on a couple of things. I got into an, a, a borderline argument about Culture Club and like with like a bunch of people and everybody can name one Culture Club song. And I'm like, but I can name seven, right? Like, I feel like everybody's like, oh yeah, Jim Lee and Chris Claremont. And I'm like, yeah, but Will Sportaccio and Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza and these guys Peter added David. to Peter David. Peter David out of that. Certainly can. Peter David had to wrap up Muir Island Saga but with the way that that shit was going down and took over and, and started building and fleshing out characters that had just been so peripheral, that had been beyond peripheral in the extended cast of X-Men. Um, in his X-Factor run, um, like he, and then his storm off after making X-Factor a legitimate big thing was what gave Lovedell his first big break in there as a writer. So yeah, like Peter David was a, a big part of that web as well. And, you know, it's really interesting because Nicieza took over X-Men adjectiveless mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Lobdell took over Uncanny. Yep. So with Lobdell taking over with Uncanny 281 and going from there, Scott Lobdell was writing the book. Lobdell didn't take over at 281. He didn't take over yet. He didn't take over for a little while. They were There was burned scripts off right. of the plot yeah. for a stretch that um, through the 280s and I want to say even the beginning of the 290s, Lobdell's first issue as writer is not right away. There is that burn stretch. So I actually want to just pull out a book that you and I were talking about earlier. We were just talking about comic books creator on the X-Men mm -hmm. and it actually has an amazing amazing uh, organized back that tells us what's going on. Lobdell took over Uncanny at 286. 286 and, then, I'm sorry. I thought it was also, a couple issues later. No, he also wrote X-Men 6 through 11. So like, you know, yeah. his fingerprint was on a lot of stuff. And John mm -hmm. Byrne, the reason I thought of it is John Byrne, when he was asked about scripting those issues, actually really famously said it was the worst experience of his entire career. He said mm -hmm. that he'd never been more mistreated and never been uh, treated quite now, stupid. John Byrne... My feelings on that is that he's the type of person that if you treat him special, will think you're treating him normal. And if you treat him normal, will feel like he's being neglected. Um, I, see which, that. I mean, many of us are also that way sometimes as well. Oh, yeah. But no, John Byrne is way too much the control freak to be doing scripts over artist plots. Like, that's not going to work out long term. Because he always that's... felt that he was undercredited as the artist. And now the artists are getting overcredited the on the writer. And he's being asked to do the writing, not the art. Like He's not even doing the plotting. He's just coming in and scripting the plots by the artists. And when I take a look at a page like this where they say, oh, that's Apocalypse. He looks like a woman. Yes. Like the artists at this point were doing things like draw a Lady Apocalypse for one page. One panel, and, Lady Apocalypse. And he liked, like he's notorious too for being, um, because he loved Wolverine, being one of the reasons why Wolverine started seeing exposure, more exposure under his run than Cockrum's. Because the way that him and Claremont worked, where they would, where Claremont would plot and they'd go over things together, 
And then he would start paneling. The artist would start paneling and Claremont would fill in the script after based on which characters were more featured by the artist, got them more lines in the script. Like they were giving exposition or saying things because of the way that they ran that timetable. So Byrne got to feature characters he liked more on his choice of paneling. He hated then on the other end, not being part of the plot and having the paneling done to show him which characters he had to write more, not having any say in that, being forced to script for the characters dictated by the writers. Yeah, that drove him fucking nuts. And they're not even characters he likes because John Byrne was a big fan of like my characters, my era, my time that way that for years Alex Ross wouldn't draw Kyle Rayner or Wally West as Green Lantern or Flash because that wasn't his era. John Byrne is very, that's not my era. So it kind of makes sense that he would really resent working in that time. So we're talking about such a lost time that featured body horror and, you know, Bishop and the time traveling XSE stuff. And, you know, we're seeing all of this really disparate sort of And also, cheers to Shard. Shard, Shard, who is just like one of the best surprises of the X-Men a couple of years ago. I want Shard on Krakoa. How is Bishop not fighting for Shard on Krakoa? Can we not project a hologram egg? Is that the problem? Because why not a real shard? Oh, do they not have a DNA? Maybe not. Because no, they, they have shit. They have shit. They have shit. Sinister has something. Well, and here's the thing: haven't they said that they can't bring back time displaced people? I don't think they've explicitly said, but they've hinted. Yeah. So I'm a little worried about my poor bishop, but you know, shard was so cool that when I did this huge run of, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have a lot of the X books uh, naturally, and then Marvel Unlimited, and perhaps. I found some files at one point that I never downloaded and I did a complete read of the entire X universe. And that was a lot of my life. And I thought shard was one of the best surprises of the entire X verse. Also the late nineties alpha flight was pretty cute. Howard Mackey's shard was one of the delights of that um, run. And then it's just so weird at the end when there's the other writers doing fill-in stuff and they do the issue where all of a sudden she's a teenager and has to go to high school. I just did a full reread for the the gallery of X Factor. So I went through all 149 issues and found a way to blurb in like three sentences or less what happened in every one for the visual gallery on my website, sleepwiththewheel.com. Yeah, those are fresh in my mind. And I just had to have like a stop, stare at the screen, what the fuck moment when I was... And I don't blame you. I do not blame you because it is it is a tough era to get through. It is one of the many futures, though, that Marvel loves to dial into. The Escani future? Uh... We have to talk about this. We have to talk about this. Uh... Now, part of this, okay, so Scott Lobdell, he's taking from what was done. So Scott Lobdell essentially here with making Jen Ascani from Endgame actually be Rachel Gray and having Rachel Gray Summers be the one who pulls them forward into the future and explain how after she disappeared into the time stream in Excalibur 75, the rest of her life was spent here. And he takes her through to the conclusion. He essentially ends. He puts a period at the end of the character of Rachel Gray Summers in this book. How exactly do we un... I I cannot... I've read a million editions of X-Men. Mr. Deep Dive X-Universe. How the fuck was that unperioded? Like, how did we get Rachel Gray back from this? Because I couldn't tell you. Well, we I actually know, got her. Like, she was yeah. back, but like... 
We actually got her back in the pages of Cable. Before the Claremont Revolution era, we got her back in the pages of Cable for a few issues, and then she sort of disappeared again, and then she reappeared in the pages of X. Claremont Bottom era and Extreme. They made it seem like uh, either Betsy was back, or I forget who they made it seem like was back, and then it turned out to be Rachel. And I was happy to get Rachel back, but so I'm so glad you brought up Rachel because I think Rachel serves as a really great anchor point to Apocalypse as well. Okay, this future is Cable's past. This future is Rachel's future. This future is Apocalypse's future, but I don't think this can be either of the people's future that it is, even if it's still Cable's past. (laughs) Okay, so we've clearly diverged enough that Hox Pox era, it's really hard to say this is where Apocalypse winds up. Agreed. This is, okay. Cable's one of the characters that I love trying to do this stuff. My kids will ask me to, like, explain characters to them that, like, are so fucking hard to explain, and I will enjoy trying. Examples of that are uh, Ilyana, Rasputin, Rasputina, yep. I guess it should be. Cable is another big one. Like, Long can you try to explain it to a... Ch- yes. Long shot. Can you explain it so a child would understand? Because there's no fucking way to explain it so an adult would understand. Can you explain it so a child would understand? And it's hard, but yeah, your basic... This goes to my overall feelings of this series, Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Like, I love the spirit of it. I love that it exists. I don't particularly enjoy reading it. Not at all. Um... It's not fun to read, but it is so great that part of this story is that we can say Cable was born here, he was abducted, Apocalypse tried making him the perfect host body that would give him immortality, and Rachel from the future came and took him and then brought her parents back from a little moment in time where they were away from everyone, their honeymoon, so that way they could raise him and so her father could raise the son that he had lost and take him to manhood in the future. And then they finally confront Apocalypse and they're able to stop it and we develop strife and we learn about the the flip coin, the evil mirror of Nathan and that relationship and dynamic. And we get, I had to look this up, we get a Joffrey Barathean character book for Joffrey Barathean. I had to look it up. This came out around the same time as Game of Thrones, but before Clash of Kings. So we were not deep in King Joffrey evil fuckery yet. When we get Strife as that character, then we get Ascani son and we see him grow into the man and meet his wife and and really develop what that future will be to tie it into the one who will come back in New Mutants as the older man and lead that group who will then make the connections with his father in X-Men, who will be Cable and represent the soldier, bring the soldier dynamic back and to fight against Apocalypse as he stands in that time. Like, you can tell it in a way. You need very strong points. Reading through those points is hard sometimes. Especially because, yeah, this is like a best parts version of what you're talking about. This is like clips of it instead of the actual narrative. That Rachel gets to be this here. That Scott and Jean get to have this. That Jean gets to definitively be the mother who raised him, even though Madeline was his birth mother. That Scott gets to have gone to the future and have this with his son, which is so important to him because he has 
so much pain over his father not coming back for him when they were separated to be able to have the opportunity to go to his child son when they were separated is so important to him as a character like these are major development beats for the family that really defines x-men X-Men is, in my opinion, a Summers story. They haven't always been the biggest character, but it is a Summers story through and through. This is essential to that generational tying together times of it. We're talking about a future that never really happened anymore. And like, I'm so glad you brought up Strife because Strife sucks in this particularly. I don't always love Strife. I don't always love Cable. I don't always love X-Man. I usually love Cable. He sucks in a way that he's supposed to suck. He doesn't like, he's not like ironically shitty or he sucks because he's poorly written here. He's, he's Joffrey Barathane, evil prince here. But I think he does suck because he's poorly written as well. Like, he sucks in a way where he's poorly written as well. Like, I I find the character very two-dimensional, and he doesn't come off to me like he believes he's going to become a god. Like, I don't understand how he doesn't think he's going to die when Apocalypse takes him over. Like Because he's been spoiled so much his whole life, he can't imagine it. He has been a prince who... Every adult around him was scared to say no because his dad would fucking murder them. If you raise a human being like that, they're going, they're not going to have depth. Totally, but then how is he a compelling villain for Cable? He is, okay, and so (laughs) this is probably the worst way to have villains, the dark version, like Hulk, but evil, Spider-Man, but evil, Cable, but evil. I mean, that's what he is. He is nurture versus nature. He is literally the genetic duplicate of Cable. But if he was raised by Apocalypse instead of being raised by Scott and Jean. So, but then the question is, would Cable raised by Apocalypse have also turned out that way? Or would yes. Cable... See, and now I think what we're supposed to take Because from this they're the same. It's the identical twin thing. It's like but- identical twins. The nature is identical Every difference we see here is nurture. Everything sh- we see, the difference between what Strife became and Cable became is nurture. I'm, I'm only going to say that I think Cable is supposed to be a person with a stronger set of convictions. Like, I think we're meant to believe that Cable could overcome the darkness and that well, Strife is happy this to be is, in the darkness. He's raised by pre-the-12 Scott, who was nothing if not fucking moral convictions cranked up to 11. I feel like we're oh, but we're hand-waving a lot of very thin writing. I think Lebdell has a very firm grasp on Scott. I think that yeah. he has a... I think that what he intends to do here, and I could be wrong because I'm reading intention, I think that he is very specifically showing two characters that are supposed to be like identical twin comparison that we're specifically seeing them raised by polar opposites in Apocalypse and Scott and Gene. We're seeing Scott given a chance, taken out of his world and out of his other responsibilities where he can 100% focus on nothing else than being a dad, the most important thing to him. Not ever let it be sidetracked or sacrificed from being an X-Man. Just be a dad gives us the cable that we get. And I love that for cable, but I still don't feel like I understand Strife. Strife is this... He's the absence of all of it. That's that's my problem. There's there's no compelling villain in this whole thing. No. This miniseries lacks a compelling villain because this apocalypse sucks. And yeah. Strife is pretty hollow. So yeah. it's just this sort of praetors that are kind of... 
I mean, the villain is the future itself. And it's the inevitable, though. Like, we know Cable is not going to get sacrificed. Like, we know before it starts that, like, we know how it ends. The point of it is just to get that story out of the way, establish who Nathan and Strife are, and give us Scott and Gina's parents. But so now we're saying that this is so core to canon, but what's not core are the actual events of this book. No, not at all. <laughs> There's some, a future that never happened. The, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. This is a spirit of the law book, 100%. And that's even what I'm saying about Strife. Like, I like Strife in terms of Cable's nemesis. But, mm-hmm. like, there's nothing from this that matters that isn't Scott and Gene raised Cable. So, as going to the end of issue four, when Cable could have let Strife die, and probably should have, and chooses to save him, and wants to try and redeem him, even though that ain't fucking happening, they make Strife so irredeemable. He is. He is irredeemable because there is nothing that you like or agree with about him. He is not like trying to do a good thing a bad way. He's just a little spoiled evil shit. We would have taken joy in Stripe's death as well. We would have been like, good. Cable chose to save him. Cable gets to be better in that sense. Like Nathan has significant growth. He is a hero above us where we would have been like, fuck that kid and he chose to save him. I would have honestly been kind of like, oh, that him choosing to let Strife die wouldn't have had any kind of impact on me. Oh, so Strife's dead. I also want to talk about some of the apocalypse canon here. Apocalypse is an old man wearing an apocalypse suit. (laughs) 